Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, the Cavaliers brought a championship back home to Cleveland for the first time in 52 years. We'll break down what happened in the NBA Finals and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 29 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about regarding the NBA Finals and the new 2016 champions, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes, I didn't think I would be saying that a week ago, and it was funny. Last week, I was all set to do a show featuring a member of the Golden State Warriors media or somebody close to the situation to talk about their historic regular season and where they now stood in the NBA Finals at the time. But I decided to wait, and that turned out to be pretty good judgment based on how quickly things changed. The Cleveland Cavaliers becoming the first team in NBA history to come back from a 3-1 series deficit and win the NBA Finals with a thrilling four-point victory in Oracle Arena in Game 7 to seal the deal. Now, there's so many different storylines to dive into for the NBA Finals for both teams, both Cleveland and Golden State. Based on what Golden State had done in the regular season, 73 wins, setting the NBA record for that. But as many people said, that wouldn't mean anything if they did not bring home an NBA championship. I mean, that was something that we saw when the Chicago Bulls had set that record when they went 72-10, and 10, and Scottie Pippen wearing that warm-up shirt that said, don't mean a thing without the ring, as in, this is nice, the record is great, but we need to seal the deal and win the championship, which they were able to do. Unfortunately for the Warriors, they matched their regular season loss total in the playoffs with nine losses. As you can imagine, that's the first time that's also been done in NBA history. Not really the side of the record books you'd like to be on. It was just amazing to see how quickly things change. This Warriors team that was so fun to watch in the regular season, so cocky, so cocky after they had won last year's championship. They play with so much swagger that they can't possibly be beat. Even early on in these finals with the press conferences, we heard Clay Thompson saying that this Warriors team would beat the Showtime Lakers. In interviews past, when the Warriors destroyed the Cavaliers in the regular season, we had Steph Curry make a comment about how the visitors' locker room still smelled like champagne from what they had done last year winning the championship in Cleveland. 
But when Draymond Green ended up getting suspended for game five and in the following games, that cockiness went down a little bit and instead almost went to Cleveland because LeBron James, though he hasn't publicly said it, has had so much off the court and even on the court motivation to win a championship this season. Last year, after they had lost in game six, he even went as far to say it might be better for him to just not even make the playoffs than to continue to get to the NBA finals and lose. And had he lost these finals, the haters would have been out in full force once again. He would have fallen to two and five career in the finals. People would have said his team being at full strength, he once again couldn't get the job done. And instead, with his back against the wall, his team's back against the wall, down 3-1, he has one of the best three-game stretches in NBA Finals history with 41-41 and a triple-double in Game 7. The streak of 52 years without a championship in the city of Cleveland was ended, and LeBron did exactly what he told Cleveland he would do upon his return back home. Exactly. This was for them. And this is really it for us, for the LeBron James haters, for the doubters, for those that continue to want to say that he is not one of the greatest players ever. This seals that deal. If he were to retire tomorrow, his legacy would be sealed enough to put him in that upper echelon of NBA greats. And because of that, because of what Cleveland was able to do and come back from that 3-1 deficit, I was trying to put it into context with some of the things that we've seen in sports throughout the years as far as comebacks are concerned. The only one I could even argue in the same breath would be the 2004 Red Sox coming back from three games to none against the New York Yankees in the ALCS, the first time that had been done in MLB history, then sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series to win a title for Boston and end an 86-year curse of not winning a World Series championship. Now, you might think that that's a ridiculous comparison, but hear me out here. The biggest difference, of course, is that Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, had not won a championship in 52 years. On the other side of the coin, Boston teams had found success many times over before the Red Sox had won their championship with the Celtics, the Patriots, and the Bruins. It's not like the city of Boston wasn't used to winning in other areas. But there are a lot of incredible similarities to the journey that both teams took to win that elusive championship. The Warriors, of course, blew out the Cavs in the first two games, then did so again in game four until LeBron James went off, as I mentioned, for one of the best three-game stretches in NBA history. Comparatively, the Yankees sort of did the same thing en route to winning those first three games of their series against the Red Sox. They raced out to an eight-run lead in game one, ended up winning by three. They beat Pedro Martinez in game two. In game three, they had 22 hits and won 19 to eight and set forth the narrative of the series was over. 
just like the Warriors did when they went up 3-1, winning in convincing fashion in Cleveland. But David Ortiz then had his LeBron James-esque moment, hitting a walk-off home run in extra innings after Rivera blew a save in Game 4, hitting the game-winning walk-off single in Game 5, Game 6 had Curt Schilling's bloody sock in a 4-2 win, and then that eventual Game 7 10-3 blowout in Yankee Stadium highlighted by Johnny Damon's grand slam in the second inning off who? Javier Vasquez, who had replaced who? Kevin Brown. Not exactly the guys you want going for you in game seven, but that's for another day. Much like the Splash Brothers not living up to their potential in the finals, neither did the heart of the Yankees' batting order in those final four games of Hideki Matsui, Alex Rodriguez, and Gary Sheffield. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in the first three games, they were hitting somewhere around 400, 450, 500, around that area. And then after that, in the remaining four games, they were abysmal. Didn't come to play, and that ended up killing them in the end. And much like Cleveland had its revenge against the Warriors after losing to them in last year's NBA Finals, so too did the Red Sox have their revenge from losing Game 7 the year before in the ALCS, courtesy of Aaron Effin Boone, as he's still known to Boston Red Sox fans. So as you can see, there's a lot of comparisons to what both those teams did in those historic comebacks. The parade was held in Cleveland, 1.3, 1.4 million people filled the streets to attend it. You swore that the parade was going to last 52 years itself. It was an amazing sight to behold. J.R. Smith apparently gave his jersey to his father after Game 7 and just hasn't put on a shirt since. Walking off the plane shirtless, walking through the parade shirtless, he's having the time of his life. Perhaps asking women if they'd like the pipe like he's done in the past, but I'm not here to judge that. Overall, it was a great way to end the NBA season, and as I mentioned, there's a ton of storylines that we can go through to wrap this thing up. I reached out to several different media guys on Twitter to try and help me decipher these NBA finals, which seemed to be so easy to decipher when it was 3-1, but how quickly that changed. And I actually was able to line a couple of people up to come onto the show, so I wanted to split the narrative of this series into a two-parter, if you will. This episode will deal on the X's and O's and the little intricacies of the series that we found on the floor. Next week, we can dive into the legacy of LeBron James, what this means for both the Cavaliers and the Warriors moving forward, and discuss some of the ins and outs that don't necessarily deal with the games itself, but the effect that it had on both teams and on the players and on the cities, etc. So to open that discussion, I reached out to someone that has an incredible eye when it comes to the details and breaking down what happens on the court throughout the NBA and especially in these finals, of course. That gentleman is Nick Hoselman. You might also know him as Coach Nick. He is the president and runs the B-Ball Breakdown account on Twitter and on YouTube, where he offers breakdowns of the NBA, live in-game analysis using Vine and using videos. You can follow him on Twitter at B-Ball Breakdown. That's B-B-A-L-L Breakdown, common spelling.
and he was kind enough to hop onto the show and go over some of the things that we saw throughout these NBA finals from both teams. He'll tell us a little bit about himself and what he does to keep himself busy as far as breaking down the NBA is concerned, but he'll also break down some of the major points in the finals, specifically in Game 7, and why the series ended up going to the Cleveland Cavaliers when it appeared that they were done. So I will attach some links where you can find some of his work on YouTube and follow him on Twitter so you can remain educated as these next few weeks and months go on before we get back into the swing of things in the NBA season. So as I mentioned, this is part one of dealing with the NBA Finals. Next week, we'll get into legacies and both teams and what the win and the loss meant to each team. But for now, we're going to break some things down with Coach Nick. And without further ado, let's get to that interview. All right, I'm here with Coach Nick Hoselman. He is the voice, the face, the mind behind B-Ball Breakdown on Twitter and on YouTube, where he provides amazing in-depth analysis and breakdowns of the NBA, and he's kind enough to join us here. Coach Nick, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. As we just mentioned before coming live, there's more than enough to talk about with these NBA finals. But before I get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about you and go back and tell the listeners how you got to where you are now. I know you went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and served as basketball manager under Coach Stu Jackson with his assistants Stan Van Gundy and Sean Miller. So you were certainly surrounded by basketball knowledge pretty early, to say the least. What was that experience like for you, and how did that help you get started on the path that you're on today? Uh, well, you know, the, the experience was great, is, is what you make of it. And so... One, you could either have been a manager that sort of spaced out and kind of just stood around and, you know, kind of didn't want to pay attention, or you could do what I did, which was really just sort of focus on the coaches and what they were doing um, as far as, um, you know, how they communicate, what they were saying. So it was, it was a lot of, you know, not only what they were saying, but how they were saying it and how they carried themselves. So I really try to focus on that and, you know, peek my head into every different facet as I could to learn as much as I could. And so obviously, you know, it's just a really great experience. I mean, you know, Sean Miller and I used to like play one-on-one a lot after practice. And that was kind of just a cool thing to do against a guy who I was, you know, idolized when I was growing up as a tough point guard uh, at Pitt. So, um, you know, it was just, you couldn't help but learn just a ton just by being in that environment. So based on what we ended up seeing from Sean Miller in this past year's tournament. Did he sweat a lot when you guys played one-on-one basketball? <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. I think, you know, you know, they, uh, he, uh, he wasn't in his playing shape. I think, uh, you know, that he probably weighed like a buck 50 when he played. So, uh, yeah, this was sweating. We, by the time he got to Wisconsin was, was there and it certainly, uh, is continued with him wherever he's gone. <laughs> it's understandable. The pressure is high, whether or not he's playing you one-on-one or whether he's coaching in the NCAA tournament. So you've been head of B-Ball Breakdown now for over six years. And for the listeners that might not know the ins and outs of what you do, how did you create this outlet? And what are some of the main features that you offer to the public? Well, um, you know, back in 2010, I had a buddy of mine who was uh, uh, consulting with a lot of these so-called YouTube stars. Back then, there was about 30 or 40 people in the world that were getting 100,000 views of their videos, and they were making like six figures. It was pretty crazy right. in the Wild West back then. And so I started the brainstorm. I had a, a lot of uh, experience as a, a video editor, and I also had experience as a coach a little bit, and then as uh, you know, as a performer. 
And so we started looking around, like, what could I do? Uh, in 2009, there was that uh, Celtics-Bulls seven-game series. I think it was the first round of the playoff series. And I remember everyone was freaking out about how good it was. And I just thought, there's a lot of really bad basketball being played in this series. That was Vinny Del Negro uh, coaching the Bulls. Right. And, um, and so no one was pointing it out or saying anything. So I said, you know, let's try this. Why don't we try and put them together? And, you know, uh, it, 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 the beginning wasn't so exciting. But we, uh, in May of 2010, we said, you know, let's just try this. And, um, you know, it, it took off relatively quickly, even though I would say it took me at least eight months to even get a handle on, like, what I was doing, what I, what I, what I called it. Like, I had our time just describing what I did to people. And on a typical night when games are going on, I wanted to get a better idea on what that's like for you, because if we go to your channel or if we go to your Twitter, you're usually keeping us in tune with the game, whether that be through Vine or through commentary, especially when the NBA is in full swing. I'm guessing you've got the TV going, the laptops on, other electronic devices. What's the typical process like for you to be able to put all this content out? Oh, well, you know, during the games, if it's a regular season, then invariably I'll just, you know, I have, uh, I can feed my TV into my computer, and uh, which is a zone like DVR. I can use the arrows to jump back and go forward. And then I just literally uh, watch, you know, I pick a game, and I'll watch it, and I'll grab a vine, and I'll comment on it. And if it, the game kind of stops interesting me for some reason, then I'll just switch to another game, you know. And then, you know, by the end, I'll usually be on the West Coast game. There's probably only like one of those at any one time, maybe two but usually it's only like one. And so, you know, it catches my eye, and then, you know, I bounce back and forth. I mean, you know, it's it's not that scientific. <laughs> right. How have you been able to evolve with social media really taking off right around the time when you first started doing this, where you have a lot more interaction now with people that are interested in what you're doing? You're able to communicate your content a lot more. What if some of the things have changed as far as when you first started up until now? Well, I, the Vine thing for the Twitter was a it was a huge thing because before that I would offer uh, commentary, but with no connection to what the play was. So whoever read it would have had to have remembered what they were watching and like put it in their mind. Oh yeah, that's that's what that was. And right. It was kind of so archaic that I can't believe anybody followed her on, but they did, and we actually had pretty good interaction that way. And when I finally started to understand like what Vine meant. Uh, and all the other video stuff that's attached to Twitter, that really opened up a whole new, I mean, that's where it exploded. And, you know, whenever, like, I have my, the most interactions now, obviously, during these games with Vine. And so that is, and I, I'm, there's no doubt the, the Vine is, is, is the key here. So that was a really big one. And then, you know, certainly with the YouTube side, um, you know, I, the initial suggestion I think I had was it didn't matter what it looked like, what it sounded like, just just do it. And I think it was based on what they learned with other people like uh, Ray Williams Johnson and, and Shay Carl, these guys who literally just, you know, it's all handheld and sound good and look good, but they were funny and it worked. But I noticed that, um, you know, I didn't get traction until I went to HD. This is, you know, how long ago it was. Right. And I, and I certainly, and I got more traction when I finally had a much, you know, cleaner background, a better mic uh, on and all that stuff. So as soon as I made it more professional looking, people started flocking. Who knew the large impact you could have in just six seconds? Vine is a beautiful thing, or in 140 characters on Twitter. So everybody wants their news as quick as they can get it, and those are 
two great outlets to do it, and you do a great job with that. So now to get to these NBA finals, what's funny is if you take a step back and look at it just from its surface, we had the best team in the West play the best team in the East with the best player in the world winning the NBA championship. So if you just look at it that way, things pretty much went chalk in that regard. If only it was really that easy for LeBron James. When the series was 3-1 with the Warriors heading into Oracle for Game 5, did you ever think the Cavaliers would be able to pull that off? No way. Not not a chance. There was, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, let me say that again. Full strength, not a chance. They lose that game. But uh, without Draymond Green uh, and, and the way they lost that game, uh, it, it seems very clear to me, and I, I would agree with anybody who wanted to argue that, that the loss of Draymond Green for that game was huge and most likely impacted the result. Before we get into that, I wanted to just hit on some points from the regular season. Some of the things that you've seen, of course, from this Golden State Warriors team who set the NBA record with 73 regular season wins, completely changed some of the ways we view the game with the success they were able to have from the three-point line. What are some of the main things that you were able to see that really made that offense so successful when they're clicking on all cylinders? Well, you know, I, it's not necessarily revolutionary because I, I see a lot of, you know, triangle offense actually what they do, but the, the speed with which they get the ball up into the front court and move the ball and have all five guys moving together at the same time uh, is a revelation because for so long we would have, you know, such very concentrated action of one or two people doing something on one side of the floor with very little on the other. And this became more of, you know, a skill game where they had have, they have enough guys that could shoot it in space and they had enough guys that could handle the ball and, and penetrate. Um, so it was, and you know, passing was really exciting. So, it was really just a fun brand of basketball, and certainly in the regular season, you know, the shots that, you know, Clay and Steph would get, uh, those open threes, you know, I would say at least a quarter of them were on the such on by far the worst defense imaginable. Nothing to do with what they were doing. It was just the guy would fall asleep. They wouldn't pick somebody up in transition. It was just the basic stuff that you'd normally see. And, of course, as you get deeper in the playoffs, those shots disappear. Right. And then you need to do something else <laughs> to get to get those, or, or at the very least, you're going to you're missing a quarter of your offense almost, right? right. That's that's sort of the point, and uh, and that's that's the thing that you need to be able to continue to evolve and adjust. On the other side, we had the Cavaliers, and we know what they had to deal with in the early season. They lose Kyrie Irving. They change the guard in the head coaching position, bring in Tyron Lue, and they sort of spent the regular season trying to stay out of the limelight while also trying to find themselves. But once the playoffs started, they go 10-0, and they start clicking, they start coming together. How did you see the Cavaliers evolve on both sides of the ball that really got them to where they wanted to be when the playoffs got underway? Yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of the ball movement there uh, from them as well and getting a lot of – remember, they were raining down threes better than the Warriors were. And um, that was exciting. They were, play, they were playing well, but I couldn't shake – the feeling that the, the competition they were playing wasn't nearly as good. Like, none of the teams they played in the first two to three rounds, you know, would have probably won in the first round of the Western Conference. Right. And so I, 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 was, I, had, a, I had a great pause, you know, about what they were doing, um, you know, until I got the chance to see them in the finals. And then, of course, you know, there wasn't much to change your mind down 3-1 um, uh, until that game five. So... You know, I don't know. I, I felt like they did what they were supposed to do, and they were, that shows you just how weak the East was, even this year. And uh, and then something happened. 
and it wasn't a great start for them and by any means getting blown out really in the first two games we actually really had six blowouts for those first six games before game seven with the Warriors doing their thing at home they split with Cleveland but then the Cavs respond with their backs against the wall LeBron and Kyrie have the 41 in game five they blow open the game in the first quarter of game six but as you mentioned that suspension of Draymond Green along with the injury to Andrew Bogut, really shook up the series. How do you think those events changed what we saw in those final three games? Well, you know, not having a starter is painful. Uh, you have you built your entire season to have a certain rhythm and a certain trust in your teammates and a certain you know, familiarity with them. And so you take a starter out, and that's very difficult. We saw what happened with the Cavaliers. In the very least, they had a, you know, a few rounds to get used to at least not having Kevin Love. And um, and so that was one. But we saw it again, you know, once uh, the Cavaliers lost Kyrie Irving, and they were they they just about had Game One. They, I think they won Game Two, but you know it, it quickly you know became turned south on them as well. So you know without without uh, Draymond as a starter, that was huge because he was such the lifeblood. And I thought what we saw as far as defensive mistakes were the kind of things that when Draymond is in there, they don't happen. He keeps everybody focused and in the right positions and communicating better. Now, with Bogut, he wasn't playing that much. So it was almost like, well, can they really, you know, they really, is it going to be devastating to them to not have his 12 minutes in the game? But right. we did see in game two in the first quarter when he basically ended, he ended the game. He, he blocked some shots, and he was so active down there. They changed the whole tenor of the game, and they went on and blew him out big time. So, you know, without that, that was, that was big. That was part of it. But then... The, the flip side of that is that that forced Steve Kerr to play Ezeli and Verajal way, way more minutes than they should have, and that's ultimately what killed him in Game 7. Yeah, we definitely saw that in Game 7. One of the things I wanted to touch on before getting there, it seemed like the officials really let the teams play at some points in the series, but there were also games where the whistles were a little quick to blow. Specifically in Game 6, we saw Steph Curry foul out after some questionable calls on some reaches that you might usually not see when it comes to the MVP. We had Steve Kerr take one for the team after that game and call out the officiating. What was your overall sense on how these finals were officiated as a whole, whether they were a little bit too quick to bow the whistle or whether it was nice to see them in some circumstances kind of swallow them and just let the players play? I, I think it was okay. You know, I mean, I think uh, the one of the games, I, mean, I think it was game six, was so bad for both sides that you kind of cancel each other out, um, you know, but, but so, you know, that, that's what you kind of had. I, you know, in fact, let me, let me rephrase that. Cause I don't maybe it wasn't good. I mean, there was a lot of moments on a lot of the games that were just, you know, head scratching and um, you know, and that, and that, that became the problem. Like even the Draymond Green suspension should have been a foul on LeBron before that. Right. And had that happened, and LeBron doesn't, you know, step over him and he doesn't catch him in the groin area. So, you know, all those things add up. And then certainly the, the Steph Curry fouls in that game were, you know, bizarre, uh, to say the least. Now, of course, the sixth one, you know, he shouldn't have been in that position. Right. You know, uh, 90, 90 feet from the basket, like reaching in and trying to do something there. And that was not smart. But, um, you know, he kind of got out of the guy's way, and, and then they call it. So it was just, um, yeah, they, they, they struggled without question. So coming into Game 7, 
from what you had seen all series, did you have any expectations for what we might see coming into that game? Did you expect another blowout or did you expect both teams to really just put everything on the floor and end up having the game that we had? No, actually, in my experience, game sevens at home like these are usually like the home team does some sort of a run at the end of the second quarter or early third, and the visiting team panics and starts sucking up bad shots, and then usually the home team wins going away. So I think I was expecting that. And you know what? It was almost like that. We had that. Uh, The Warriors had an eight-point lead, I think, in the third early, and uh, they had gotten much better shots all first half. It was not even close. Right. They weren't hitting them. But uh, and then and credit to the Cavaliers for hanging tough and in, in, in somehow you know manufacturing points. But um, you know the, the shot the shot quality of the Warriors in that first half was much better. And so you thought it was only a matter of time before they start to you know knock some of those shots down. But of course, as the pressure mounted. You know, I think I think they got overcome by the pressure and started to uh, started to look like a, a visiting team instead. We did certainly see some tendencies as the series wore on, and especially in Game Seven, it seems like in the third and fourth quarter, the Warriors went away from attacking the paint, and on the Cavaliers' side, they seemed to be getting the ball to their playmakers and forcing the defense to switch so they could get into more favorable matchups. What are some of the things you noticed from both teams in that game as it got going into the fourth quarter that you might have been surprised by or some of the different things that you noticed both teams trying to do on both sides of the floor? Well, I mean, I was certainly surprised to some degree with how the Warriors offense yeah, dissipated and like turned into like ISO as well. Um, and that was surprising. But they did also, they did get some good stuff down, down the stretch as well. Like we, we broke it down and showed that they, you know, even that the possession where Seeker didn't call a timeout and they had a two-for-one, they ran a really clever little set on their own, or maybe they called it in real time and just whatever. But, uh, you know, you get, um, you get a wide-open three from Curry in that, you know, in the last couple minutes that, you know, you thought, oh, how does he not make that? But, again, that's that variability of three-point shooting. Even in the best of times, you're not going to hit more than 50% of your wide-open threes. So, it was, but it was surprising to see them miss. They, they got some good shots down the stretch, uh, now, the, the Cavaliers decided, you know what, we're not going to mess around with all this, you know, ball movement, side-to-side stuff. We're just going to simply set a screen with, with Steph's man and force him to switch. And if we don't get it, the clock's going to run down, we're going to burp something up. And, um, you know, that was frustrating to some degree for me because it was sort of the antithesis of teamwork and, and, and you know, team play. Uh, however, uh, you know, I'll just throw this in here as a, an aside, but, you know, the, the, the Cavaliers won the game, and that was what made me feel at least good about it because it, had they backed into the finals and somehow just sort of, you know, somehow outlasted the Warriors and made one less mistake and won, that would have been a little unsatisfying. But at least, you know, uh, uh, Kyrie hits a, a clutch three, and uh, before that, LeBron gets that really amazing block. So those are the two plays in the last three minutes or so that and you know that that secured them a victory. So that that was surprising as well, but uh, they they won it. It was definitely interesting too. At the end of the game, there's about three minutes left to go, and what's funny is that with the game tied, both teams had scored just as many points as the other throughout the entire series. So in all those seven games, even with the blowouts. Both teams had the same amount of points at that moment. And it was nice to see, in a way, both stars seem to be taking over, wanting to hit that big shot. We saw LeBron shoot some shots, the same thing for Seth Curry. But I think the changing point of the game, as you mentioned, 
was LeBron James running the length of the floor, blocking that Andre Iguodala fast break layup. Is it safe to say that that block is one of the best defensive plays you've seen, considering the magnitude of that moment? Oh, without question, it's got to be. I, I don't think I don't think anyone's come up with a, with a a better answer for uh, which what is the best defensive play of all time in the finals. I don't. I think that's got to be it. I mean, everyone wanted to say half a six stole the ball, but that was in the conference finals. So um, yeah, I, I have to imagine. I mean, that, now the Jordan steal of Malone combined with his game winner right after that against Utah probably is up there as well, but. Um, but uh, that was a. I mean, Malone wasn't about to score. He stole it as a post up. This was a, this was going in. This was a layup. And by the way, a two point lead at that moment it was like an eight point lead. The way this game was right. going. So, um, you know, I think it would have. It was a bad play by the, the Cavs that led to a run out. Like it would have been a big game changer had he made it. And it's, uh, you know, I, I the Warrior fans must just be like still scratching their heads about how that didn't you know, how it didn't happen. And the interesting thing as far as the offense was concerned toward the end of that game, both teams end going one for 17. We, of course, know Kyrie Irving was that one, which proved to be the game winner on a follow-away three in the unanimous MVP's face, which was probably nice for him after not being able to play last year. Do you think that stretch where the Warriors didn't really score for about five minutes was more them going cold or the defense that the Cavaliers were able to play in that span of time and shut them down? Uh, it felt like cold. They went cold. I mean, they, they had a clay had one and Steph had a wide open shot. They got shots. They got what they wanted out of those uh, for the most part. Uh, it's just, they didn't go down. Um, and that's, you know, again, that's the jump shooting criticism, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I don't think that Steve Kirk would have could have gotten angry uh, uh, for you know at least half of those shots during that stretch, or maybe more. That were there, they were good shots. Were you surprised to see on what ended up being that second to last possession when Steph tried to get around Kevin Love and tie the game with the three pointer? That seemed to be on everyone's mind that they wanted to tie it. They really had the opportunity if they wanted to go for a two for one based on the time. Were you surprised to see what they ended up doing in their final couple of possessions? That, it was the whole thing was shocking, yeah, and, and it's um, and it's uh, inability to cope with the pressure. It seems like and the mistakes they made. Now the two for one thing was a really big uh, thing, and whenever Steph does that dance against the big guy and, and knocks those shots down, I mean they're amazing, and I uh, you know everybody can be in awe of those, but they never feel like those are high percentage shots. And uh, you know now you're talking about Game Seven of the NBA Finals in the last minute. It's like that's just. The ultimate in you know high pressure, low low uh, high risk, low reward shots, and so I was not really happy with seeing them do that. They they easily they didn't need a three. They were down by three, perfect two for one. They go and they attack the basket, and then they can get a score, and then cut it to one, get a stop, and then win to the buzzer. So they didn't need a three. That was the worst part about it. Even though that's the way they operate and that's what they like. So without question, I thought that was a mistake. There's been some questions that people were surprised in Curry that he was not able to shake off Kevin Love in that stretch because he did try, but giving Love credit, he did stick with him. And we know that Steph had had that injury earlier in the playoffs to his knee, but then he also had come back against the Thunder in Game 5 and threw up 31. So it's not like he was struggling this entire series, but if you asked him how he played in the finals, and even if you look at it statistically, he definitely didn't play up to his potential. Was there a specific thing that you can attribute that to for a poor finals performance? 
Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, everyone, and everyone was yelling at me for, you know, listening as an excuse, but he was hurt. He, he was not moving the way. I had lined up a play against the Lakers in the preseason where he did this crazy, like, uh, you know, through the legs three times, a step back, whatever, move then was not the way he was moving now. So I think it's all clear in everybody's mind that he was, he was, you know, 60, 70%. That's what he was. And, um, you know, and, and he, he gets, you get credit for going out there and trying. And I think some nights and probably felt a little bit better than others. And that's, you know, allowed him to sort of, you know, be able to, to go for 31 or have the moments in the finals where he looked healthy. But um, it's not even the up and straightened, straightened uh, back and forward motion. It seemed like it was a lateral movement, which is where he needs right. to get those step backs and be able to move and get by guys. He didn't seem to be very stable on that. I mean, we saw evidence of him like contesting a shot and then not even trying to land on his on that left leg. So you know, it was just bothering him. It was off, and it's too bad. And that's you know what every team has to deal with. And they were lucky enough last year not to have to deal with that stuff, but. Uh, it seems clear to me that that wasn't, you know, the full the full Monty. Now we saw Draymond Green go off for almost a triple double. Had one of the best games of his career with 32 points. Was hot from the three point line in the first half, tying records for threes. Something that you wouldn't expect to hear before the game. But as the team as a whole, Clay Thompson really wasn't great. The role players that had been so important in Game One and Game Two to give them those wins when the Splash Brothers really weren't doing too much didn't seem to be there. Is there anything that you would have done differently as far as maybe lineups or offensive game plans that could have maybe got those players involved that was so effective in the first two games of the series? You know, it, it's a hard it's hard to comment because we don't know what's going on in the locker room, the mindset. I mean, I thought Sean Livingston looked scared in a lot of the uh, of the finals, like just doing bonehead plays and just seemed out of it. He, he, he was able to kind of get settled after a minute or two, but there were times that he'd come in and just like, just look scared. So of course, are we, you know, does that mean that Steve Kerr has the utmost confidence and played him 25 minutes? But maybe not. That's probably why he didn't. Um, so, so, you know, certainly you know, more Livingston and less, you know, his Ely Rivera job probably would have been in their best interest in game seven. Um, you know, the Varejao stuff was, was interesting and he, they, I love that they gave him a chance in the beginning. They ran a play for him to get a little post up, and he got a nice little jump hook, but he missed it. And then they, they got him rolling, and he needed to just, all he did was dunk it. He just blew it. So whatever was wrong with him was, was unfortunate. But you're right. He, he got too many minutes. And everyone wants to criticize Steve Kerr about the, the fourth quarter Azili minutes. And, you know, we broke it down. The, the only problem they had was when he fouled LeBron on that three. Right. If, they, if you take that away, and that's a dumb play, uh, then, then his stint in that fourth quarter was fine, but um, you know because he was dumb, he got. Because here's the thing: you, you'd want to give LeBron the three point shot, give him some space. If you want to jump, you know, give him the five six feet and then jump up where you are and then obscure his vision. That's all he needed to do. And they kept pushing up on him and picking him up uh, above the three point line, and that just got them all bent out of shape defensively. So I was I was really uh, mystified by that whole defensive philosophy. I think one of the major things that we saw change was in LeBron James because many have said for years if his outside shot is falling, that's when he's just a scary man. And he ends up winning finals MVP, of course, leading both teams in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. But this seemed to be one of the first times that we really saw him start to take over 
on both sides of the basketball. I don't know whether or not I might just be saying that because he did win finals MVP and did lead in all those categories, but it seemed like he wasn't shying away from taking over. We even saw it in the last play for them offensively when he soared up for what would have been one of the best dunks in NBA finals history if he didn't get followed by Draymond Green. And coming into this game, coming into this series, we heard so many negative things about him being on the downswing of his career and playing too many minutes, and then he answers it with 41 and 41 and a triple-double. Have you ever seen anything like this from a player's standpoint, from what he was able to do in this specific series? Of course, what he was able to do last year, bringing them to the finals, winning two games, but from just what he was able to do this series, can you put what he's done into words? I mean, it's definitely one of the best three-game stretches of anyone's uh, finals career, without question, uh, Even no matter when the three games happened. And then you, you throw in the fact that it was every one of those games the closeout game for them. And uh, it was really impressive, uh, without question. I mean, that's got to be up there with Jerry West and Michael Jordan and, you know, the other best uh, finals performances. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly where it goes, but it's got to be top three, I would imagine, of all time. And, uh, and so, it, you know, it was impressive. Of course, you know, I brought it up and people wanted to scream at me. Um, you know, he went one for five in the last seven minutes of the fourth quarter. Right. And the way the game was going up until that, that uh, you know, he boxed the, the layup attempt, you know, he was going to be a scapegoat. He, he you know, he kind of did, didn't come, to, didn't bring it when they absolutely needed it down the stretch. And, uh, you know, and then Kyrie had to hit the three. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad because it would have been really probably brutal on him had he ended up one for five you know, down the stretch, they lose the game, you know, and that just would have been a really horrible narrative that I don't think he deserves. And so at the very least there, I'm glad that they were able to pull it out so that went away. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I, there's no one that has done that kind of output, you know, in, in closeout games like that. And, you know, and certainly no one's ever come back from 3-1 either way. So that's another indication. It's just uh, uh, remarkable. Can you just give the listeners some ideas on what he brings to the floor on both sides of the ball for the Cavaliers or for any team that he's on? I know everyone seems to want him to go out and score 40 points per game and really show things in the scoring column, but he's able to do so much more and, as he likes to say, make the right basketball play. What did you notice from him specifically to these finals and how he was able to get everyone involved and as a team really come out and win this championship? Well, you know, one of his strengths, obviously, is, is, is passing. He's not necessarily that killer uh, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan mindset where he's, he thinks he's just going to score every time he gets to the ball. And so that, that you can argue that makes him even more dangerous because suddenly you have to really deal with everybody, not just him. So, you know, when they were getting him on the high post uh, a lot and running things off of that, that just made his, his teammates better. And it was the kind of thing that they didn't do last year. So it was good to see that he finally trusted his teammates a little bit more uh, and was able to make them more dangerous. I mean, the one thing I noticed I didn't really like as much is when he gets the ball in the high post, he keeps his back to the basket. He's very passive as only a passer. And there's no threat of him scoring. And I thought that was a problem. I think he should have faced up a little bit at least shown that as a possible threat because it was weird. It would happen often where he'd catch and he's just sort of, you know, backing and he's looking, looking over his shoulder and like trying to just, all he could do is pass in that position. But either way, um, the, the, the gravity that he commands wherever he is on the floor and also the way he's able to organize everybody, uh, it wasn't fancy. <laughs> you know, it was, it was it, down the stretch. It was just pick and roll uh, with, you know, Steph's man. But um, he, he had control of the game. 
and uh, you know they were able to you know to, to to score four more points. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the coaches talking to Coach Nick, of course, and I wanted to get into Tyron Lue since we've already touched on Steve Kerr a little bit thrown into the head coaching position and it was something that it appeared the players really wanted and a lot of people said that if David Blatt was still the head coach they might not have won an NBA championship and Tyron Lue really brought them to the next level what stood out for you from a coaching standpoint some of the different adjustments he was able to make especially when his team was down 3-1 that really got them playing great team basketball and in turn ended up winning them a championship you know, it's kind of tough. We did a breakdown. We were tracking how LeBron was attacking and looking for the trends between isolation, post-ups, and um, pick and roll. And, you know, the, the game five, it was a big anomaly where they adjusted and ran a lot more pick and roll. I mean, a lot more. But without Draymond in there, it kind of was an anomaly as well, like because they didn't run that many after that. Um, although I, I haven't tabulated the game seven. I suspect it's probably close than what was in Game 5. So, you know, clearly they were watching this stuff and they, they realized that, like, the ISO post-ups that he was doing were not really working as well, needed to cut those down because it was so stagnant. So, you know, they, they, they made the adjustments. Now, a- after that, it's like, I, I don't know, they got better at guarding the of switching on their off-screen, off-ball screens of the Warriors. So the first four games, the Warriors were able to screen off the ball and then cut back door and get layups and get shots. And then when they didn't, you know, two guys are rotating down, leaving the guy who's screening wide open, you know, uh, for an easy shot. So they got better at doing that, and that's definitely a, a Tyron Lue thing. I'm sure they drilled it, in, you know, in a practice or two and got better and smarter. Um, you know, but but then again, you know, you look at what the Warriors were able to do and how they were running it. It was like, you know, at least in the game seven, uh, they played, they did enough to win. You know, they right. just didn't score in that stretch. They didn't hit those shots that they would have they liked. So it's you know I, you know there's a little bit of adjustments there on the offensive end. The defense I thought you know aside from improving the switching on those off screen off ball screen, that didn't seem much different. I mean maybe they trapped uh, Curry a couple times in there on the pick and roll that kind of got them off off kilter, but nothing too crazy. And then on the other side, uh, you know I, I think the biggest criticism we've seen of Curry is the is the lineups and the and the you know who he was playing. Um, you know, but then again, they were, they were, it's hard. They were right there. They had it. They had the game seven. Right. And, uh, you know, a play, one play goes another way. And then all of a sudden, you know, Seeker is a genius and, you know, the smartest guy in the room. Right. It, it would have been a completely opposite narrative if that were to happen. So to close with this, the Warriors are already the early favorites to win the NBA championship in 2017, of course. But if LeBron stays in Cleveland, which he seems to be leaning toward, I'm guessing that could change. What do you think the main improvements are for both teams that could make them a little bit better or might help them guarantee that they have a shot to get back to these NBA finals next year? Right. Well, LeBron opted in as far as I heard today, so I think he's, he's not going anywhere. But I would suspect that Cleveland would want to improve. Uh, I mean, Kevin Love will most likely be shopped anyway, even though they won. Um, and so he's probably not the best fit there. Um, so they'll probably try and upgrade that. And I know Richard Jefferson, I think, is, a, is a retiring as well. He played a lot. So they need to find a guy who can play that, that small forward position alongside LeBron when he's power forward. Uh, they need to upgrade that, upgrade that to keep even with where they are now or, or anywhere near where they are now. Um, and I bet you Kevin Love will be dangled uh, to, to replace uh, Richard Jefferson-type guy. 
Um, other than that, you know, we'll see. Delhi might be gone, and they might need a backup point guard. Uh, they need somebody better than Mo Williams without question. And uh, so that's a, that's a thing. And then um, on the Warriors side, I mean, obviously Harrison Barnes struggled mightily, and he's going to get offered a max, I think, even still, or close to that. And so the Warriors are going to have to make a decision. You know, they, they could upgrade that position. There's no question they could probably, you know, I mean, th- th- that would be the, uh, the place they'd probably look. Um, but other than Kevin Durant, I don't know, you know, who else they sign it better. Uh, and then, you know, the backup center or the center position is also a thing. You know, Bogut is injury prone, unfortunately. So they need someone now. He's really on his way, uh, to becoming that starter and really playing well. He completely lost his, um, his, um, confidence. And I think he got a little bit tweaked, uh, hurt a little bit as well. So, you know, they, they might rely on his development over the offseason, and then he'll come back even better as he's slowly improved over the years. Um, but maybe not. They might end up saying, you know what, we're just going to bring somebody in. So those are the two positions they need to really they need to upgrade, I think. And, um, you know, the only way to upgrade, you know, with with the small, with the Harrison Barnes position is, is, you know, probably KD. Right. There could be a lot of amazing moves that happen in the offseason, or everyone might just be waiting until next year. So we'll see what happens with that. I wanted to let you go out of here by just giving yourself a little plug for what you've got going. I know that the regular season, the finals are over, but the work for you doesn't stop. What are some of the things you have coming up on the fire now with the draft coming up and everybody wanting to know what their prospects are looking like? What are some of the things we could be looking out for on B-Ball Breakdown now? Well, we started to prep a thing on Simmons, on Ben Simmons, and I'm going to try and get to Ingram um, as soon as possible. Unfortunately, you know, the game seven went so late that I didn't have the time I thought I was going to have to prep for all the draft stuff. So it'll probably be more and more reactionary. So we can talk a little bit about how some of these top rookies are going to fit with their teams, uh, which are always popular videos. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try and get, I want to do a thing on LeBron's last three games. I, I think it'll be kind of cool to see uh, a, a nice breakdown of that. Uh, I have another one I've been prepping for months uh, about the triangle offense and how it still lives and breathes in the NBA across a lot of teams. So we're going to do a cool one on that. Um, and we do a lot of retro breakdowns of old games and uh, interviews with NBA players and coaches. So, you know, our summers are as, almost as busy as they are, we are during the regular season. Never a dull moment, and you'll definitely keep us preoccupied until next season rolls around. Coach Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again for coming on and educating us on these crazy NBA Finals Maybe we could catch up again soon when more things hit the fire, but I'm sure you'll be staying busy and continuing to offer us content, and we'll be looking forward to see what you got going next. Hey, you got it. I'm in. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. Please subscribe to The Bridge Podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review or comment by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. You can also find episodes of The Bridge over on SoundCloud or on the Stitcher app. On the next episode of The Bridge, we will take a look back at the NBA Finals and discuss what went wrong and what went right for the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. 
We'll discuss Golden State's historic 73-win season, take a look ahead at what both teams can do to get back to the finals next year, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.